I'd invite those of you who have uh, a paper version of your Bible to open it to the book of Mark. Those of you that use it on a tablet or a phone, swipe up and find it. Mark chapter 1. Our scripture passage this morning that we will be looking at is Mark 1 verses 16 through the end of verse 28. Mark 16, Mark sorry, 1 verses 16 through 28. The passages that were read by Matt at the beginning and Isaac just now are are very relevant and very important uh, as we start working through the book of Mark because the big question of the book of Mark is, who is Jesus? And the passage that Matt read from John chapter 1 is a very um, deep, rich, full, and yet succinct theology of who Christ is. And um, the hymn that Isaac read found in the book of Colossians is also very succinct, rich, deep. Um, But they help point us in the right direction, help us get our minds in the right frame of thought. So let's keep those passages in the back of our mind as we uh, read verses 16 through 28 of Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with the hired servants, and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as one as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I just invite you to bow your heads with me just one more time as we go before the Lord. Father, we ask you in a very special way this morning to send your spirit to open up your word to our hearts. Help us to see and understand more clearly who Jesus is. We thank you for the words of encouragement that we've already heard from the scriptures. We thank you for the word of encouragement we've had through song, through songs that have been written to remind us and to encourage us and to push us on to greater faith. We ask now for help as we study your word. Lord, I would echo what, what Isaac has already prayed and has already mentioned. Pray for our our government, the people in leadership, the people who have the authority and the power to do certain things in the land. We pray that you'd give wisdom. We pray that you would give everything that's needed to make the right choices. Lord, we know that 
Humanity's heart is full of sin and wants nothing but to gain for themselves and to push away all that is righteous and holy. But we would ask that you would break into the hearts and lives of those in leadership. First and foremost, Lord, that you would save those who are in leadership. That you would call them to yourself. That you would do an amazing work of salvific power in their lives. And that you would work in them to make wise decisions about what should be done. Not just in our city, but in our province, our country, and across the world. We pray for our church leadership. We pray for our elders and our deacons, the ones who are faced with taking the ripple effects of what is passed down. We ask that you would work in them. Give our elders and deacons wisdom. Give them grace to respond appropriately. Give them grace to respond to the congregants appropriately. Not just our response to the leadership of our country, but leadership and the right responses to the people that they are responsible to. Lord, we thank you for our leaders. We thank you for our elders and deacons and the role that they have in our church and what they've done for us so far in leading us. We pray that you'd give them strength and endurance. It is not fun or easy to read through guidelines and regulations, to wade through all of the press conferences and all of the things that are being asked of us, and we ask that you would give them more grace. Lord, we thank you for those of us that are in the building and for the vast majority of us who aren't. We thank you for the grace that you've given to this church family to sustain us through this time. We are grateful for the fact that you are our God and you are a God that cares and loves for his people. And Lord, we would also pray for our search team, the search committee that's been put together in seeking and finding the next lead pastor of Crestwood Baptist Church. Lord, I've already asked for it, and I will ask again, please give grace. We need your grace to have wisdom, grace to have knowledge, grace to know what questions to ask. Be with the future candidate, the future pastor who will be here, who will stand and preach faithfully the word of God. We pray that you would prepare his heart to be here in and amongst your people and to give leadership to this church. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all your good gifts, for all the ways that you've brought us thus far, and we know that your grace will lead us home. So we ask you for all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The question that we were kind of left with last week was moving through the the quick introduction of John, moving into the quick introduction of Jesus, then quickly moving to Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted in the desert, in the wilderness by Satan. Um, The question we were left with coming out of that, and I can't remember if I mentioned this in the video last week, but did you ever notice that in verses 12 and 13, it's a very shrunken portion compared to Matthew's account. We get all the details, the three big questions in Matthew's account. It's very short here. And what we're not told by the end of verse 13 is who won out in the wilderness. We're not told whether Jesus won or Satan won. Now, Matthew, we, we kind of fit that in um, from Matthew's account. If you've read Mark and Matthew, we go, well, obviously Jesus won. And we've, we've read the end of the gospel accounts, and we know that Jesus definitely wins at the cross. And then you read the book at the end of the scriptures, and we read Revelation, and Jesus has definitively, definitely, in all time, he has won. And yet here, as we're reading through the passage, we don't get that. 
We don't quite see that. And so that big question of the coming kingdom of God represented in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus bringing personified kingdom into the world, the kingdom of God breaking into, invading, coming into humanity. And Jesus preaches, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here because Jesus is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. The big question that we've still got kind of leading into the rest of the story, the rest of Mark is, whose kingdom will reign? We didn't get that answer at the end of verse 13. Whose kingdom is more powerful? Who has more power and authority? And our passage, what we see, I think very definitively, and we will see over and over and over again, definitively, the kingdom of God by the power and authority of Jesus Christ will win. We know that. We're accustomed to that. We've heard that before. But let's look at our passage and see the specific display of, of Christ's authority, of Christ's power. And what we see is the word of Jesus Christ doing things that no other word can. I am not really one for giving titles to sermons. And I think I probably inherited that from Steve. Steve never really did that. Steve never really had points. So I'm working very hard to break away from that mold. So I've, I've titled this, The Call of the Word. The Call of the Word. We've got The Call of the Wild, Anybody read that book? I can't see everybody else, but yeah, I I loved that book as a kid, and I actually just read it last year. Um, Fascinating book, wonderful story. Um, This is the call of the word, not the call of the wild. Call coming out of the wilderness, Jesus coming out of the wilderness, um, but it's the call of his word, what he speaks. And Jesus' word, as we will see in these two short paragraphs, we will see that Jesus' word produces results because of his power, because of the authority that he inherently has in who he is. So the first paragraph, verses 16 through 20, I gave the title, The Call to Follow. And most translations actually have some sort of calling the first disciples, calling the first four. Then the second section, verses 21 through 28, I gave the the title, The Call to Flee. So there's the call to follow and the call to flee. Let's look at the first couple of verses In verses 16 through 20, the call to follow Jesus, Jesus' big foray into ministry, Jesus' big first step here in the book of Mark is not a massive miracle. It's not the feeding of the 5,000 right off the bat. It's not a revival meeting. It's not a massive preaching uh, crusade that he goes through. Yet, his first jump into ministry is simply calling people to himself, calling people to come follow him. And the first people that he calls are fishermen, Now, I have an unbiblical, unsanctified reason for why I think Jesus called fishermen. Have I ever told you this? Okay. I'm going to, we've got time. I'll tell you this. The reason why I think Jesus called fishermen is because fishermen and fishing and fish are the most sinful thing on the face of the planet. So, I hate seafood. That's all I'm saying. I hate seafood. So, why does Jesus go and call fishermen? He calls fishermen because seafood is disgusting and he was pulling them away from the most disgusting, disgusting profession that he could possibly think of. Dave is shaking his head. That's not true. <laughs> I know that's not true. I like to think that, anyways. These fishermen were um, not casual fishermen. They weren't day laborers either. Um, They were successful, shrewd businessmen. We get that from uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee. They 
were working with their father in the family business, but they've got hired servants. They've, got a, they've actually got a business going, and they had to be intellectual in a business format. They had to actually know how to do that, how to pay people, how to work and uh, figure out so many fish versus so many hired hands. How do you work that together? And they had figured that out. They... In all likelihood, because of this business, recognizing that it's not just feeding them. If you are just feeding yourself and your family, you don't need massive nets. You don't need lots of fish because fish spoil. There's another reason why I think fishing and fish are so gross. Because whenever says, somebody says something is bad, they say it smells fishy, right? And fish go bad very quickly. And so to gather all these fish, you think of casting out their nets. These nets were uh, giant round nets that had weights on them of different kinds, rocks, metal of some kind, and they would drop down to the bottom and then they'd haul them in and all the fish underneath would kind of get pulled in towards the shore and they'd sort them out into the good fish and the bad fish, all of them being bad, but putting that aside, they'd, they'd sort them into good fish and bad fish. But the amount of fish that they would have been bringing in shows that they were actually bringing in fish for the whole region. That what they were doing was not just a service for them and their family, it was a service for the entire region of Galilee, the entire city of Capernaum. Now, we're not quite sure exactly how big Capernaum was, but they move right into Capernaum um, after, uh, in verse 21 there. And what they're doing is providing a service for the whole, whole place, not just their family. They had to be good businessmen. They had to understand what they were doing. And that puts it a little bit in context of when Jesus says, come follow me, they are following Jesus and leaving not just their family behind, not just their business behind, not just their way of life behind. They're actually leaving many other people in the lurch in some sense because by James and John, Simon and Andrew, to leave the businesses that they were in, they're leaving a business that people rely on for food. Now, there were certainly, they were certainly not the only four fishermen on the lake, but there were people that depended on them for the service that they provided. And Jesus, he's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. He sees them. And I always laugh in verse 16. The brother of Simon casting it into the sea. For they were fishermen. Of course they were fishermen. What else would they have been casting nets into the sea? Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The call goes out to these guys casting their nets into the lake, and the call is simply, come follow me. Just come follow. What's interesting is that for most rabbis, most teachers, the call was, come follow God. Come be a part of what we're doing as we follow God. And what Jesus says is not come alongside me and work with me as we seek to follow God together. It was come follow me because he is God. And what Jesus is doing, and we see this again um, in our next section, how people are astonished at the authority that he taught with. People would have been astonished at his tactics as well. Rabbis didn't just go up to people and say, hey, I want you to come follow me. They always waited for the initiative of the disciple, the one out there to come and ask them. There had to be recognition on the part of the disciple that I have some sort of wisdom and knowledge and intellect that you need to come learn from me. And yet what Jesus does is reverse that role. He calls them to himself because Jesus is showing, even in the way that he does things, he is not like the other rabbis. He is not like the other scribes. And we'll get to that in just a minute. The call that Jesus 
gives to them is to come follow him, but it's to come follow him in service, in ministry, in doing something, not to just be along for the ride. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That phrase is missing in some translations, the become part. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Some other translations say, come follow me and I will make you fish for people or something like that. It's very true. Like that's not, a, that's not a misleading translation. But that one phrase in there, become, gives us an indication that it's just the start of something. It's just the beginning. I'm going to make you become fishers of men and that process of becoming fishers of men is going to be a process. It's going to take time. You are going to learn. You are going to mess up. You are going to stumble. And we see that over and over again in all of the Gospels. How the disciples put their foot in their mouth more than once. Peter does that all the time. The disciples will not understand. They won't grasp. Jesus will be teaching the crowds and the disciples, the close disciples, the 12 who've been following Jesus, they don't even understand what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus has to bring them along. He's, he's helping them come along. He's just making them, he's changing them into what he wants them to be. And it's a process for them along the way. The call to service, fishing for men, um, is more than just a play on words. We've heard that, you know, that's how we teach the kids, right? And Jesus goes to fishermen and he calls them to fish for men. Get it? And, and that's true. It is kind of a play on words. And yet at the same time, in the Old Testament, in the context of judgment specifically, God himself is the fisher of men. There are multiple references scattered throughout the prophets where Jesus, Jesus where God himself, the Lord, is going to hook the people and draw them in. He is going to cast out his nets to draw in the people. And what he's drawing them into is to judgment. The hook in the mouth is not a fun picture, a nice picture of a bed of roses. It's a picture of judgment. And so in this call, having that Old Testament context in the back of our mind, when Jesus calls them to be fishers of men, fishers of people, what we see is that in the Old Testament, God was fishing for men for judgment. And the stark contrast that we will see is Jesus calls these guys to come in service, to learn this service, this ministry of the kingdom of God to salvation, not to judgment. That what was in the old is not true in the new. They will fish for people. They will fish for men so that those people that they fish for may escape judgment. And the, the biggest difference, the only difference between the Old Testament context of destruction and judgment and the New Testament fishing for men is Jesus. That, that's the only difference between the Lord coming in judgment and the Lord coming in salvation is Jesus is the key. How can Jesus say right now, I will call you to be fishers of men and it to not be in the context of utter destruction and judgment? It's because he is here and because of what he will do. There is only judgment outside of and apart from Jesus. That was true in the Old Testament context. We've got to figure out how that works, but it's true in the New Testament context all the more. That what we see over and over again is there is only judgment and death and destruction. There is only the wrath of God apart from Jesus. That Jesus alone brings salvation. And their response to this, and I think we, uh, we're a little bit used to this, 
we're used to this story, we're used to this response, so of course they left, of course they went to follow. Did they not understand, did they not know what they were getting into? The answer is no, they didn't. But their response is both prompt, immediate. Verse 18 says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him, immediately. And it's both immediate and complete. That is, we see in verse 20, for James and John, and immediately he called them and they left Not nothing, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands, with the hired servants. We will see in verse, in in the, hopefully, Lord willing, next week, we will see that uh, Simon has a mother-in-law. And in order to have a mother-in-law, you must have a wife. And so Simon has a wife, and I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that Simon and his wife would have likely had children. Um that he is responsible for his mother-in-law, that she was being cared for, she's in. Um, Simon doesn't just walk into his mother-in-law's house, that the way things worked was you had houses as families, that you had generational homes that you lived in, and they were likely close to the sea because that's where the family business was. And for Peter to leave, he's not just leaving his mother-in-law. We don't know anything. Perhaps his wife had died. Perhaps he had no children. So it, it might be a bit of a leap to say he definitely had. And yet at the same time, Historically, this was true of people, that they had families. And so for Simon and for Andrew, for James and John, they're not just single guys who have nothing anyways. It's not like they were bankrupt and in debt and were looking for something better. They had lives. They had successful lives according to human standards. They were fishermen who had businesses that had people relying on them from the entire region for the service that they provided for these this, these people. And yet, they hear the call of Jesus and they respond immediately and fully. And they didn't know much about Jesus at this point. That's one of the things that um, many people will try to do. They'll want to find a little bit more about Jesus before they decide to follow him or not. Um, the case for Christ. Who wrote that? Why can't I remember? Lee Strobel, right? Yeah. That's what he did, right? He went in to investigate, to to figure out historically who was Jesus, what did he teach, what do the historical records say, and how does that match up with the scriptures? And he went to discover who Jesus was before he decided to follow Jesus or not. These four guys, they don't know much about Jesus. They follow Jesus in order to discover who he is. And there's a certain level, and to a certain extent, where what Lee Strobel did is possible and true for all people, that you can find out historical facts about Jesus and yet you cannot know him truly until you decide to follow him. That by following Jesus, that's where the greater knowledge, the greater understanding of who he is, the greater appreciation of what he's done, that can only happen by committing and following him, by becoming his disciple. They didn't wait to discover who Jesus was before. They, they didn't, in, in other words, they didn't weigh out the odds, weigh the cost. They heard the call of Jesus and they followed And their response was not based on miraculous evidence or public debates yet. We know that there are miraculous things coming and public debates where he um, will just school the, the rabbis in terms of theological understanding, but they didn't have any of that yet. And I think that's very important for us to see that even though we read in all of this extra stuff that we know about Jesus and how he's going to defeat and how he's going to um, just destroy in debate, we, we know all of that, and yet these guys didn't have that. They were fishermen who in all likelihood had heard something about Jesus. Jesus was in the region and he goes in to teach. He was in all likelihood not, well, his name in and of itself was not an unheard name. 
Jesus was a fairly common name. And yet at the same time, what did they know about this man in particular? We're not quite sure. And yet we do know that they immediately and completely decided to follow him. And all they had was Jesus' call. All they had was his word, come follow me. So that's the call to follow. The second thing we see in verses 21 through 28 is the call to flee. Not people, not humans, but in this case we know it's the call to flee from himself. Jesus will cast out an evil and unclean spirit. After he's got these four guys following him, he enters Capernaum. He enters the local synagogue. There would have been lots of synagogues. Synagogues were just the the places of teaching. There was one temple in Jerusalem, but there were many places of learning, places of intellect, places where people would go to be um, taught by the scribes, the teachers of the law. And he enters the local synagogue in Capernaum and he teaches them, teaches the crowd. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately... That's one of Mark's favorite words, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that last week. Mark will constantly say immediately, right away. And it's one of those um, literary keys where it's just one thing after the other. Mark is just walking through the story of Jesus. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And one of the frustrating things is that we're not told what Jesus was teaching. He enters the synagogue and he teaches naturally goes to the place of learning and exhortation. That's where he is going to teach about the kingdom of God, about himself. But the focus from Mark is not on the content of the teaching. It's under the power of which he teaches. It's the authority that he teaches with as opposed to what he is actually teaching. Synagogues were meant to be the place where people would go where they would would soak it all in. The scribes would teach and exhort what the scriptures, what the Torah stated. What, what it was we were to understand about God. And what we'll see in Mark is that the synagogues are hostile towards Jesus. They're hostile towards the very thing that they were supposed to be all about. We'll see in Mark that demons are present, that evil spirits are there, that there's antagonism from religious leaders, from the religious elite. They'll be antagonistic towards Jesus and his disciples. There's a hardness of heart on the part of mainly the religious leaders and yet on a lot of people within the crowd. And in some cases, there's just outright persecution on the basis of those in the synagogue persecuting those who are teaching something contrary to what they've ever heard before. And what should be a welcoming place turns into a hostile place. And yet this is the place where Jesus goes because these are the people that need to hear this message. Mark just states he was teaching. And it astonishes the people because of how differently he teaches compared to the scribes, the teachers of the law. These people, the teachers of the law and the scribes, that's one of those things where uh, it just depends on your translation. Some will say scribes, some will say teachers of authority, um, both meaning the same thing, except I think for us, when we hear the word scribe, we just think of people who copy things out, right? Or is that just me? Does anybody else think that? No? Scribes just being like the guys who, here's what the Bible says, and they were just copying out to have multiple copies of the scriptures. And in this case, that was semi-true, and yet it had evolved into, because they were constantly copying the scriptures, they were the ones knowledgeable in scripture. They were the ones that had spent so much time in the scripture. So they weren't just copyists. And in fact, they had kind of moved away from that. Um, They were scholars, 
They were Torah professors. They were teachers, moralists, people who taught how Israelites ought to live in light of who God was. They were, in some sense, two civil lawyers because they understood the law, because they understood they kind of inherited from Moses and his buddies who... If you read the Old Testament account in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Moses was the one that people went to to figure out who's right and who's wrong. You got a civil dispute, who do you go to? You go to Moses. Why? Because he's talked with God. And then that um, authority gets distributed to, oh no, I can't remember. Was it 80? 70? 80? 72? We're going to go with 80. We're going to go with handful of other guys. So that there were multiple people who could, I can't remember the specific number, multiple people that Moses could, that other people could go to, to hear from God's word. What does God determine in this case? And these guys kind of inherited that role. They had taken on, we've been in the Torah, we've been copying, we've been studying, we will teach the people. And so in some sense, they were lawyers. They were able to uh, distinguish between right and wrong in this case. But the difference is between these scribes and the authority with which they taught and the, the authority with which Jesus taught. The big difference is, is that the scribes had a meditated authority. They had meditated on the Torah. They had thought about, they had copied out, they had written, they had been surrounded by the Torah for most of them, the vast majority of their lives. And the difference from that and the authority with which Jesus teaches, which is just in himself. Jesus shows up, he starts teaching, and the people are astonished at his teaching. Verse 22, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, the scribes, they had self-imposed authority based upon the fact that they had spent time in, the, in God's word, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. And they had this meditated authority that they had brought upon themselves. And yet when Jesus shows up, he teaches, and he teaches with authority that's based just on who he is. Just based on his word and his word alone. He's not referencing any scholar. He's not referencing any scribe, which is what many of the rabbis, the teachers of the law had to do. As so and so says, or as this rabbi has stated, I'm with this guy. This is what we kind of do um, in our circles where most of what I say is not fresh out of my own mind. I did not come up with it myself. And yet, so in many ways, even though they are my thoughts and my notes, I have learned from other people. I have learned from the people who have gone before and studied the scriptures. So in many ways, I could say, as Dr. Carson has stated, as Pastor Piper has stated, as, as these guys who have gone before and been studying and soaked in the word, that's, that's how we work, how we operate. And yet Jesus shows up and he doesn't, he doesn't pitch his authority to anybody else who's come before. He doesn't pitch his authority to anybody else who's got a greater authority because he in and of himself has the greatest authority. And what we see in Mark is not the content of his teaching but the authority with which he teaches and that the person of Jesus, who is Jesus, takes priority over the subject of what he actually teaches about. We get the basic Content Back in verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That is certainly what he's teaching. But from what passage, from what angle, from what illustration we're not told. The most important thing for Mark is, do you not see that this one who is coming and teaching with authority teaches with the authority of God himself? When he speaks, God speaks. Then a man with an unclean spirit appears. 
I always found that shocking too. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. How did this guy get in? Like, so they don't have people guarding the doors saying like, are you in your right mind or not? This guy was free to come and go. And as we see elsewhere in the, in the gospel accounts, there were people with evil spirits who lived with family. There were people who lived out in the, out in the mountains, um, the strong man who couldn't be bound. There was people who, my son is bound by an evil spirit, and they come to Jesus seeking help. This guy, he is immediately in their midst, in a synagogue, with them, hearing what Jesus has just said, hearing the authority by which Jesus speaks. And the surprising thing about this man with an unclean spirit is that this unclean spirit, this demon, seems to understand more than the crowd does. That he understands more about who Jesus is, which is Mark's point, than the people there listening. Look in verse 24. This is what he says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes, by the way. Like, that's, again, not answered right here. It wasn't answered in the end of verse 13. It's not answered directly here. But yes, Jesus has come to destroy the kingdom of Satan. He has come to destroy and will destroy all those who oppose the kingdom of God. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This evil spirit knows who Jesus is. This is not a profession of faith which is a very important distinction for us that knowing a lot about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Knowing a lot about him intellectually. Certain Satan has a far better theology about God and Jesus than you and I do. He's been around a lot longer. But because he may know what God has done and what Jesus has done, Satan was there. He's seen how the Lord has worked and acted throughout history. So in some sense, I think Satan knows more about how God works than we do. And yet at the same time, that does not mean that he knows God. He does not know God. He does not know Christ any better than we do because of the relationship that he has with him. It's not a profession of faith, but a statement of fact and an important warning for us that just because we know a lot about the scriptures does not mean we know the scriptures. Just because we know a lot about the word does not mean we know the word. Just because you can say all the right verses about who Jesus is does not mean you actually know him. And it's, it's an important reminder for us that knowing Jesus is more important than knowing a lot about him. The question is, why does, why does the demon actually state this? Why does the evil spirit actually just ramble out all these things? It's almost like the cat's out of the bag. And that seems to be the case when Jesus silences the people who continually, the evil spirits that continually state what is true about him. So the question is, is Jesus worried about the cat being out of the bag? And, and what, is the, what is the demon doing here? Why does the evil spirit actually state this? Is he trying to trick the people? Because you think, if you think an evil spirit states what is true, you would be more inclined to think that that is false, right? If a liar is constantly lying, everything that comes out of their mouth, I am more inclined to think that it is a lie, even if it is true. It's the boy who cried wolf, right? If the boy who cried wolf just kept saying wolf, 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 then nobody believed him when he actually told the truth. Is this the kind of thing where this evil spirit is trying to trick people to make people think that Jesus is not, in fact, who he says he is? Or, there's, there was an understanding within the, those who were faced more abruptly with the spiritual realm, with evil spirits, with demons, that by being able to state the spirit's name, it, you were exercising power and authority over that being, over that power. So to be able for this evil spirit to try to say Jesus' name 
Was this an attempt for this spirit to exercise some sort of authority over Jesus? Because if I can say his name, if I, if I can get to Jesus that way, then maybe I can have authority over him. Is that the case? Maybe it's a bit of both. But I think the, it's important to remember what the big question is coming out of verse uh, 12 and 13. The biggest question is, whose kingdom will reign? Who has that power and authority? So I think that's where there's probably a little bit of the latter, this evil spirit trying to exercise the, the kingdom of Satan over the kingdom of God. Maybe there's a bit of trickery in there. But the question is, who has the greater power and authority? And again, we see in Jesus's rebuke of the evil spirit in verse 25, Jesus does not appeal to any authority outside of himself to cast out the demon. That is, Jesus teaches from the Old Testament on the basis of his power, and he validates that power in a very visible way by not appealing to any other power outside of himself when he casts out the evil spirit. He simply speaks. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. That's it. We will see that again as Jesus calms the storm. He says, be silent, be still. Jesus will just speak and it will happen. And again, we see the immediate result coming from the four guys earlier. The immediate response is again here in verse 26. Immediate silence and immediate expulsion. Verse 26 says, the, And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Immediately, right away. There was no debate. There was no massive struggle. There was no arm wrestling thing that went on. Have you seen that picture kind of floating around the internet of, of Jesus with his flowing blonde hair and his nice complexion in an arm wrestle battle with the devil? Have you seen that? Nah, maybe it was, it's probably 10, 15 years old. Um, it's a terrible picture because it, it depicts Jesus and the devil in some arm-locked battle as if they're equal powers. You see the bulging biceps of Jesus and the bulging biceps of, of Satan. And it's depicting them as if they're, this fight is equal. That it's, it's two powerhouses going against each other and we're not quite sure who's going to come out on top. And yet, even though we were wondering who's going to come out on top at the end of verse 13, there is no doubt right here that Jesus will always come out on top. There's no, just instantly, the demon, this evil spirit, the unclean spirit must do exactly as Jesus says. Naturally, people are astounded by the effect of Jesus' word. Verse 27, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. Even the unclean spirits, that is, the unclean spirits within this realm, within this region, within their understanding, they were untouchable. We can't do anything to these unclean spirits. They come, they do, they take their will, and they just impose it upon whoever they wish. That is, there's nothing that we can do as humanity to go against and war against these unclean, these evil spirits. And yet when Jesus shows up, he teaches with authority and he expels with authority simply by speaking. And people are astounded by the effect of his word because that's all there was. That's all he had done. He didn't punch out the guy with the evil spirit. He just spoke and the evil spirit had to leave. Men held captive by unclean spirits are set free by the one anointed by the Spirit of God. That was very important just earlier. The baptism of Jesus with the Holy Spirit descending onto and into and empowering for service the Son of God. And the one who is powered, overshadowed, 
by the Spirit of God, casts out those shadowed and overpowered by the spirit of the devil, by those evil and unclean spirits. And this news will spread quickly. Verse 28, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Redeemed captives is certainly good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is here. And what is its essential message? Redemption for lost souls. Redemption for captive souls. Captive in this sense, and yet as we continue to explore and understand the teaching of Christ, continue to explore and understand what Paul exhorts us in his letters, it's not just those bound by the evil spirit that are lost and captive. It is each and every individual who is apart from Jesus Christ, bound and captive by sin with a rebellious heart towards God. And what has Jesus come to do? He has come to set those people free. He has come to set his people free. That's pretty good news, I think. That is gospel at its core. And it's encouraging to see that these people, as ignorant and misunderstanding as they were, they didn't keep that to themselves. His fame spread. Have you heard what Jesus has done for this man? He was once bound captive by this evil and unclean spirit, and Jesus has set him free. Good news indeed. Well, we are faced with two things, I think, as we finish up our two sections here. From the call to follow, we are faced with the reality of leaving everything for the sake of following Jesus. That we state very emphatically, and yet in our Western culture and society, does not carry the weight it does for our brothers and sisters in Africa, or our brothers and sisters in China. The fact that following Jesus may lead to me losing everything is nice in theory and yet not in reality. I haven't experienced that yet. I haven't had to. The time may be coming where, that, where we are faced with that reality. But these men were faced with the ever-present reality that if I am to follow Jesus and follow him in service in the way that he has called me, that means I leave my family. That means I leave my business. That means I leave my friends. That means that maybe in some small capacity, although I don't quite understand, I leave people dependent on me in the lurch. I'm not quite sure what that means, Lord, but okay, you've called me to follow you and I will follow. And are we prepared in our hearts and in our minds, not just the 10 of us here right now, but for all, all of us who are going to read this passage and hear the call of Jesus, are we ready and willing and understanding that this might mean I could lose my family? Those coming out of a Muslim background and the Muslim faith are faced with that reality in a different way. They are quite literally expelled and excommunicated from their family, and in many ways, they are sought after to be killed and executed. Are you and I willing for the sake of following Jesus, to potentially lose your kids. I, I don't think I can. And is that something to be ashamed of? Because I'm not willing to follow my Lord and Savior in every possible way. Maybe. But we go back to the fact that Jesus said, I will make you become. It's a process. We're not there yet. And so we follow faithfully. We do our best. And we remind ourselves that this might mean losing everything in this world. And yet, 
We are also faced with the reality that following Jesus means everything. That it means redemption for lost souls. That it means redemption from captivity. That following Jesus is not like following the old fuddy-duddy who's got nothing for us. We've got something much better in following Jesus. That even though it might mean losing my family, losing that promotion, losing my job, that it might mean in some capacities as we're seeing in other areas of the world, it might mean losing this. It might mean losing this building. It might mean losing special status with our government. It might mean something tragic and horrible in worldly terms. And yet, when we look at the greater scope of things, it means we have received everything in who Jesus is and what he's done. That following Jesus and losing everything in this life is not a loss because it means we've gained everything in the next. That following Jesus is worth everything and actually worth losing everything in this world. That's what we're faced with. That's the reality that we have to come to in our minds and may the Lord help us as we work through the scriptures to see over and over again. People are faced with that reality. Are you willing to follow Jesus at the cost of everything? And we'll see over and over and over again that that call does not go out, come follow me at the risk of losing everything. That call does not go out in a void, in a vacuum. It comes with very explicit, obvious, visible, visible, tangible evidence that following Jesus is worth it. That following Jesus is worth giving up everything that you've got in this life. That following him is worth it all. Father, we would ask that you would help us to understand, help us to appreciate and see more clearly what Jesus has done. Work in our hearts in a powerful way for us to love you more. Work in our hearts in a powerful way to help us to love things of this world less. Not because we are beginning to hate those things, but because we are beginning to love you more. That our love for you would overshadow our love for everything else. That our love for you would overshadow our love for our spouses, for our kids, for our family, for our co-workers. And not that we begin to hate those things, but because we love you so much and we start to love them through the love that you have given to us. We ask that you would work in us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I'm going to invite our music team to come back up.